Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 21. Uh, This week I was um, thinking about garage sales. Uh, We had a couple garage sales in our neighborhood recently, and and there really are a remarkable cultural phenomenon. You know, the the garage sales down the road started at 8 o'clock, but cars were lined up starting at 6 a.m. so people could, could get in. And, you know, I just wonder about what's going on with those people, right? You know, what's going on? Saturday morning, they get up at 5, 5.30 to make it to the garage sales and make all the rounds. You know, what's happening in their minds? I, I was thinking about my parents. It made me think about my parents' last garage sale they did was 15 years ago. And uh, the last one made my dad swear off of garage sales forever. Um, you know, they were going to open at 8 and 7 o'clock. People were banging on their door and banging on the garage and trying to get in. And finally, they opened a little early about 7.30, and, you know, actually went pretty well. They're selling off a lot of stuff, and then at one point in time, a guy grabbed my dad, and he said, hey, can you help me carry this, this uh, coffee table to the car? So my dad took one end, the guy got the other end, they walked the guy's car, loaded it in, guy closed it all up, drove off, my dad came back, and mom said, where's the money? <laughs> my dad had literally helped the guy steal, you know, which I guess people, are, they're all looking for a steal, right? I mean, literally sometimes. The guy stole that coffee table, so my dad walked in the house, closed the door, and said, I'm never doing a garage sale ever again, <laughs> ever, ever. Well, this week, there was a very interesting story. Apparently, a couple in New York, back in 2007, they bought a, a small bowl at a garage sale, paid $3 for that bowl. And they thought, you know, this might be worth something. We should probably have it appraised. So last week they went and they had it appraised. And uh, they discovered this very rare bowl from China. Only two exist in the world. And it went to auction and sold for $2.2 million. Right? So I know you're all going to be out at 6 a.m. next week, right? <laughs> looking, for, looking for the bargain, looking for the steal. Somebody else's trash is your treasure, right? So why are we talking about Bowls from China and garage sales. Well, because I think that that bowl is a great illustration of Jesus. An incredibly precious treasure that most people would discard. In fact, almost 2,000 years ago, at the beginning of the week, the people were treasuring Jesus. They were praising Jesus. They were hailing Jesus. And then just a few days later, they discarded him as trash. Why was that? How could it be that they were regarding him as treasure and then throwing him away as trash just days later? I want us to think about that for a few moments as we look at Matthew chapter 21. Let's begin reading in verse 1. When they had approached Jerusalem and come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village opposite you and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and they did just as Jesus had instructed them. And they brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them and sat on the coat, and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds were going ahead, and those who followed were shouting, 
Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred saying, who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. So why did the crowds welcome Jesus? I want to remind you of the setting. We're right at the end of Jesus's earthly life. He has been ministering in his country for about three years, most of the time in the north, in Galilee. And now it's time for Passover. And so Jesus, along with thousands of others, are are traveling by foot from Galilee in in the north down to Jerusalem. But rather than take the most direct route down the central ridge, they avoid that area because they don't want to go through Samaria. I hate the Samaritans. So thousands of pilgrims begin to travel north and they go out to the Jordan Valley and they travel down the Rift Valley and when they get to Jericho, then they go up to Jerusalem. They go up a very narrow road, a very dangerous road. Robbers and thieves assault people. It's the setting of the story of the Good Samaritan. Man was attacked on that roadway. But in this case, they're relatively safe because there are literally thousands of people walking together. So Jesus leaves Jericho and he walks up. He stops in Bethany and he has a meal with Lazarus. Martha serves him and Mary anoints his feet. Saw that last week. The next day he gets up and he goes a short journey, a couple miles, just a few miles within sight of Jerusalem. He travels from Bethany to Jerusalem, down over the Mount of Olives into the Kidron Valley and then up onto the Temple Mount. And as he is traveling with the pilgrims, they begin to sing. And the song that they sing is Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118 is the last of the Hallel songs, the praise songs. This is the hymnal for the festivals. They didn't have to figure out what song should we sing on this given festival. That's what they sang, Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. This is the final And in it, there's a refrain, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Initially, that was understood as a blessing on the pilgrim. So blessed be the one who is taking the pilgrimage, going to Jerusalem to worship. But later, rabbis understood, no, this is actually prophetic. This is about Messiah. Blessed is the Messiah who comes in the name of the Lord. And they are praising Messiah. The imagery was, blessed is that king who will come and lead us in triumphal procession into the temple so that we can worship. And Jesus, remember, is surrounded by people from Galilee. The people who have seen the majority of his miracles. And he has picked up along the way people from Bethany who saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. And they are surrounding Jesus. And they are saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they cut palm branches and they begin to wave them. They put some on the road and others they wave. Well, those palm branches were not associated with any feast or festival. That's like waving the Jewish flag. They are waving the Jewish flag. This is anti-Rome, pro-Israel rhetoric. Okay. Blessed is our king. They say, Hosanna, Lord, save us now. Save us from what? Save us from Rome. Save us from oppression. Save us from poverty. Save us, son of David. Son of David. Remember last week we looked at this phrase. To be Messiah is the one who is anointed. The anointed one is the king. He is called the son of David. David was the son of God. David's son will be the son of God. Son of David. That is the king of Israel. What were the people expecting? What were they anticipating? 
Let me read to you from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 34. Ezekiel chapter 34, beginning in verse 23. The Lord said, And that day I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and he will be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will make a covenant of peace with them and eliminate harmful beasts from the land so that they may live securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. I will make them in the places around my hill, that is around Zion or Jerusalem. I will make those places a blessing. And I will cause showers to come down in their season. They will be showers of blessing. Also the tree of the field will yield its fruit. And the earth will yield its increase. And they will be secure on their land. Then they will know that I am the Lord. When I have broken the bars of their yoke. And have delivered them from the hand of those who enslaved them. They will no longer be a prey to the nations. And the beasts of the earth will not devour them, but they will live securely, and no one will make them afraid. What were they expecting? That the son of David would come and deliver them and rescue them from Rome. See, the last king that they had had was Herod the Great. And Herod the Great wasn't even a Jew. He was an Idumean. And when Herod died, his kingdom which was actually under Roman authority, was split up. But Judea itself was ruled directly by Rome, by Pontius Pilate, a governor. And so they're crying out and they're saying, Lord, this is the one. Hosanna. Hosanna to the son of David. The question is, were they wrong? Did they miss it? Did they miscalculate? If you look in Genesis chapter 49, Jacob prophesied over each of his sons. And he said this about Judah. He said, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. The name Shiloh is difficult to translate. It probably means the one to whom it is due. When he comes, he will rule and he will ride on a donkey. That was prophesied of God's Messiah, God's King. Prophecy was followed up in Zechariah chapter 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your King is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. As the people see Jesus coming over the Mount of Olives and descending toward Jerusalem, riding on a colt, what do they think? They think this is the King. Because in the book of Ezekiel, the glory of God departed from Israel when the temple was destroyed. But then Ezekiel had a vision that the glory would come back and it would come from the east and would come over the Mount of Olives, descend through the Kidron Valley and go up into the Temple Mount again. And God's glory would be restored. And God's son Messiah would stand on the Mount of Olives and it would split from east to west. And the glory of God and the glory of Israel would be restored when this one comes mounted on a donkey. Did they misunderstand? I don't think so. I think they just didn't have full information. If you look in Matthew chapter 20 and verse 25, Jesus explains. Jesus called his disciples to himself and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. 
And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now we look back and we say, well, of course, God's Messiah had to come twice, once to give his life and then a second time to rule and reign. But if you were a Jew living in that day and you saw these events, what could you think except that God was sending his Messiah to conquer Rome and to rule on your behalf? Of course, what else could it be? So the question for us is then, why did the crowds turn on Jesus? Why did they welcome him and then just a few days later reject him? Well, from a human perspective, the answer is jealousy. The leaders of Israel were jealous of Jesus. I want you to read with me again Matthew 21 and verse 1. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village opposite you and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. Jesus riding on a donkey was not an afterthought. Jesus didn't get right up to Jerusalem and say, you know, I think I'll just go the rest of the way in the donkey. Could you go find me a donkey? This was set up ahead of time. Jesus had prepared ahead of time where he would have the Passover meal. And he had prepared ahead of time that he would ride this donkey in. Jesus didn't need to ride the donkey. He had already walked 100 miles on, on really bad shoes over really rough terrain. And he's only got about a mile left to go. He didn't need physically to ride the donkey. Instead, he had prepared ahead of time that there would be a signal that he would send to get that donkey. So I want you to imagine for a moment the disciples walk into this town and they go up to a stranger and they begin to take the donkey, right? The guy says, whoa, whoa, don't, 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 don't take my animals. And they say to him, quite literally, God needs your donkey. He goes, oh, okay, take it then. Okay? <laughs> so, I mean, imagine for yourself, just a moment somebody walks up to you and says, uh, give me your keys. And you go, no, I'm not giving you my keys. Well, God needs your car. No, I mean, you go, no, I'm not giving you my car. What, what's, the point is, this is prearranged, right? Could it have been just a miracle? And the guy just says, sure, take my donkey. Yeah, but it's not. Okay, this was prearranged. Jesus didn't need to ride. He chose to ride because it was a signal that he was Messiah. Okay? Remember again, Jesus is coming from Galilee with all of his fans. He's coming with those who have seen his miracles. He has picked up a few in Bethany who saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. And they are saying, we've seen it. He's the one. He's Messiah. And he's one of us. Remember, Galilee was kind of like, it's like the Wild West, right? That's where all the insurrections started. They were fiercely independent. They hated the leadership in Jerusalem. They thought they they were corrupt, which they were. And they were Galileans. And so notice what they say here, chapter 21, verse 10. It says, when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred and they were saying, who is this? The crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. He's a prophet. That means he has authority over your priests. And he's not one of you, he's one of us. He's from Nazareth in Galilee. He is the one and not you. 
See, Jesus is intentionally trying to provoke a confrontation with the leadership. The rabbis had actually told pilgrims that they were responsible to walk on their pilgrimage into Jerusalem. Not to ride, unless someone was sick. And so here we have a rabbi seated on a donkey coming in, and the people are praising him and rejoicing him, and they're pulling out the national flag, the palm trees, and they're waving them in front of Jesus. And does Jesus turn down their praise? No. He doesn't turn down their praise. He welcomes their praise. In fact, he goes into Jerusalem, he goes straight into the Temple Mount, and what's the first thing that he does? He marches into the temple, and he starts throwing furniture, and kicking animals, and turning over tables with coins everywhere and it's loud and it's noisy and it's crazy it's chaos and he gets out a whip and he's whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. he's he's beating people back I mean it's a scene it, it's it's crazy he finishes clearing the whole area out and the, the the priests and the scribes they come to him they say who gave you the authority to do this who do you think you are and Jesus says to them well I'd love to answer your question let me first ask you a question When John came and he spoke to you, by whose authority did John come? And they say, ooh, (laughs) man, you know, hold on, hold on a second here. Uh, You know, if we say that he came from God, so why don't you listen to him? If we say he didn't come from God, the people are going to rise up and they're going to kill us because they believed in John. So, okay, Jesus, we we don't know. He goes, I'm not going to tell you who I came from then either. Forget it. But what I am going to do is I'm going to tell a story about you. And begins to tell a parable about a great king who sent to claim his country. And he sent prophets, and they killed the prophets. He sent other servants, they killed those other servants. Then finally he said, well, I'll send my son. Surely they'll respect my son. But they didn't. They took the son and they killed him. And he says, what's going to happen to those folks who rejected the prophets and rejected the son is they are going to be killed. And the scribes and the Pharisees realize that Jesus is talking about them and they are furious. And they begin to conspire. How can we kill this man? We'll kill him. But Jesus isn't finished. He says, you know, now I'm, now I'm going to preach a sermon. Since I'm a prophet, I can do that. So he begins to prophesy just like Isaiah did. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. And he goes on and on and on. If you've read that sermon, it's on, he keeps going, woe to you. They're standing right in front of him. Can you imagine? Right in front of him, he's going, woe to you. Woe to you. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are ungodly. And he just, he dresses them down right there. He is in their face. He is provoking a confrontation. Jesus intentionally is demonstrating that he is Messiah and that he has authority. And they are jealous of him. That is why the leadership rejects him. Because he knows he... They know that he is about to take away their authority. If you look a little bit further at the people, they follow the leadership. And I believe the the reason they follow the leadership is simply self-centeredness. Why why do people come to God in general? Why is it that they, they move toward God? Well, normally, to get something from God. If you look at the history of pagan worship, if you look at religion throughout the world, it's primarily about how to manipulate God to get what you want from God when you want it and how to steer clear of his wrath. Think about our own prayer lives from time to time. We spend 90% of our time saying, God, 
I need this, I need this, I need this. Give me this, give me this, give me this. Oh, I also have a few friends and they need a few things too. Give them these things. Amen. And when the people realize that they can't get from Jesus what they want from Jesus right now, then they follow the leadership and they reject him. But on a much more profound level, the crowds turned on Jesus because simply it was the will of God. Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 4, after the resurrection, he said this, For truly in this city, in Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, notice, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. In other words, it wasn't the jealousy ultimately of the Jewish leadership or the fearfulness of Pilate or Judas's greed or anything else. Ultimately, it was the will of God, which leaves us with this question. Why did God send Jesus? Why did God send Jesus? You know, throughout this country, uh, right now, the next several weeks, you will hear, hear sermons on uh, the cross and the resurrection. And in most of those churches in this country, the message that you will hear is, Jesus died as an example of God's love. Which is true. Jesus died in his, in, as an example of God's love. Jesus preached God is love. Preach the love of God. The ultimate example of love is to die for someone else. But ultimately, that is not the point of the cross. The point of the cross is you and I have sin and everyone has sin and our sin has separated us from God. And we need someone else to die for our sin or we will remain forever separated from God because of our sin. The cross of Jesus Christ is about a substitute offering for our sin. Jesus died in our place. First Peter chapter 2, it says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. That is the essence of the gospel message. Yes, Jesus is an example for us. And yes, we can follow the example of his lifestyle and of his sacrificial death, but his death ultimately is about removing the debt of our sin. What does that mean? God sent Jesus first to reveal the extent of God's justice and his love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, it says, And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is a big theological word that means the satisfaction of God's wrath. God hates sin because God is absolutely and perfectly holy and just. He must punish sin and the wages of sin is death. There must be a death for sin. So God demonstrates his love by putting his son to death. God demonstrates the extent of his love for us by executing perfect justice on his son on our behalf so that the wrath of God for our sins could be poured out upon Jesus so that we wouldn't have to pay the penalty ourselves. Jesus is our substitute. Second, God sent Jesus to redeem fallen humanity. God pictures us as slaves. We're slaves of sin. We're slaves of death. Consequently, we are slaves of fear. But God enters into the marketplace of life and he sees us in our desperate condition and he sends his son to pay that price or to redeem us, to purchase us. Again, in 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, you were not redeemed, that is purchased with perishable things like silver or gold, 
from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers. But you were redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. This is what the cross of Jesus Christ is about, our purchase price. Several years ago, John Stott wrote this. He said, nothing reveals the gravity of sin like the cross. For ultimately what sent Christ there was not the greed of Judas, nor the envy of the priests, nor the vacillating cowardice of Pilate, but our own greed, envy, cowardice, and other sins, and Christ's resolve in love and mercy to bear their judgment and so put them away. It is impossible for us to face Christ's cross with integrity and not to feel ashamed of ourselves. He was a perfectly innocent man who died for our sins, not his own. Third, God sent Jesus to reconcile those who believe. That on the negative side, the cross of Christ removes the debt of our sin. On the positive side, he brings us back into right relationship with him. I want you to turn with me to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death, or in his physical body through death, in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. On the negative side, the debt of your sin is removed. On the positive side, you're brought back into right relationship with God. And having right relationship with God, that can never be terminated. You have eternal, everlasting life. You cannot be separated from God, having once and for all been reconciled to God. That is the essence of the gospel message. And I would encourage you this morning, during this this season of thinking about the cross of Christ, his burial, his resurrection, that you contemplate for a moment. Have I actually told God, thank you? Have I believed that Christ didn't just die as an example of a sacrificial life? He didn't just die for the sins of the world, but he died for my sins personally. Have you ever said, God, I thank you for that gift. I believe, I accept the death of Christ on my my behalf. The moment that you do, you are reconciled to him. You are put in right relationship with him and you will be there forever. It applies to you personally. And so you personally have to make a decision. It's not just a death for humanity in general. The death of Christ is a death for you. It has ramifications for all of humanity, but is a death for you. And you personally have to make a decision to believe. In a moment, the men are going to come forward and they're going to to serve us communion. In communion, we have a reminder. The bread is a reminder of the body of Christ that is the physical suffering that he experienced because of our sin, not his own. The cup is a reminder of his actual death. His blood poured out to make payment for our sin, to redeem us from sin and slavery and and death that follows And I would encourage you as the bread and the cup are coming, if you have never made that decision to believe that you do so this morning. This morning be the first genuine communion for you when you are remembering what you have already believed, that Christ died for you. If you've already believed that, let me encourage you to take some time, some men are serving us, just to contemplate for a moment the depth of the sacrifice that God made for us in giving us his son, Jesus.
Will the men come forward and serve us, please? Colossians chapter 2, Paul wrote, When you were dead in your transgressions, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Bread represents the body of Christ broken for us. Let's take the bread together. Cup represents the blood of Jesus Christ poured out as payment for our sins. Let's take the cup together. Jesus, we thank you for your amazing sacrifice, your your full and complete sacrifice you gave all. Pray that as we contemplate that sacrifice this week, our hearts would just be filled with immense gratitude that you were willing to give on our behalf. Father, I pray that you'd stir up gratitude. I pray, Father, that you'd stir up a longing for our friends and family who don't know Jesus. This week, we would pray fervently for them. We would look for opportunities to share Jesus with them. That our focus would be on the cross. It's value for all. Father, we praise you. Thank you for Jesus. Father, we thank you for setting us free in Jesus. We thank you for setting us free from sin and death that enslaved us to fear. We live in freedom all of our days with the hope of life that lasts forever. I pray, Father, that this week you would continually send reminders into our hearts and our minds of the cross of Christ and his sacrifice for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen. remind you, uh, this Friday, Good Friday service, 7 o'clock. Hope to see you there.